John tells us there are creatures full of eyes and six wings. There's a seven-eyed lamb. There's people talking to mountains. There's people washing robes in blood. There's locusts with human faces. There's lion-headed horses. There's fire-breathing prophets. There's a woman clothed with the sun while standing on the moon. I mean, is that literal? Is that really going to happen? There's a seven-headed dragon that pulls stars down from heaven. There's a serpent vomiting out a river. There's a seven-headed beast. There's frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. There's a blood-drinking harlot. Premillennialists tend to take all this literally. No wonder they're like terrified of the tribulation period and don't want to be in it and want to be raptured out. Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor at Cornerstone Community Church here in Joppa, Maryland. I almost said Abingdon, Maryland. That's what I live, where I live. It's 12 minutes away. Joppa, Maryland. Got to get that right. And the topic today is the millennium. Not the millennial falcon. Millennium falcon? How'd they pronounce that? But the millennium. And uh, I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do. Very briefly, what are the basic views, the different views that Christians have? And then I want to zoom way out and try to give you a I think, really, a whole different perspective on how you ought to view the whole thing, how you ought to think about the whole thing, where you ought to land or not land on the whole thing. So, like, by the end of this podcast, I'm thinking I might adjust some of the ways some of you think about the millennium uh, quite a bit. So stay with me on that. That's what we're doing. Let me start off with the three or four. It's really three, but one of them splits into two. So three or four main views of the millennium. They are called premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. What are they about? By the way, if you want to spell it, if you're writing, it's two, two L's and two N's. Um, so premillennialism, each of these is, is about when does Jesus Christ come back relative to the millennium? Does he come back before the millennium? That's premillennial. Does he come back after the millennium? That's postmillennial. Does he come back uh, is there actually no millennium in terms of a, a, an age of prosperity and peace that everybody's saved and there's no more wars and so on? Is there even a period of that kind of millennium? Or just, does Christ just come back at the end of this age? This age, as it is, not a golden age, is the millennium. Or is that, that's amillennial. So there's premillennial, Christ comes back before the millennium. Postmillennial, he comes back after. Amillennial, he comes back at the end of this age. This is the millennium, but it's not not a millennium like the other guys have a millennium. It's not a golden age of peace, prosperity, and gospel uh, power all over the world. So those are the three or four main views. Oh, I'm s- sorry. One of them, uh, premillennial, breaks into two. There are two groups. You don't need to know this, but I'll tell you anyway, because maybe you want to know. There's there's one group that would be called historic premillennial, and there's another group that is called dispensational premillennial. You know what? I just decided right now, I'm not even going to go into those. I mentioned them. You can Google it. You can look them up if you want to. But here's what I want to do. Here's the kind of stuff I really want to get to. So that was just intro, setting the stage. Now here we are. Why? First thing I want to talk about, why are there different views? I mean, I thought the Bible's supposed to be clear. I'm supposed to read my Bible and understand it. I thought we had Holy Spirit 
illumination going on when we read the Word of God, so that we may know the things freely given us by God. I thought we believed in the, here's two great words, they don't get used much, in the perspicuity of the Bible, or, it's sister word, the perspicacity of the Bible. Both of them mean the exact same thing, and they both come from the same Latin word, meaning you can see through it. You can see it. So I thought we believed that you can read your Bible and understand it. So why do we have Bible scholars who love Jesus Christ, who submit to the Word of God, who believe it is the Word of God, who have a high view of Scripture, who study their brains out, and they have comparatively very large brains, not compared to God, but compared to other humans, they have very large brains. And why do they, even they, land in different places, pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, and so on? Why? I'm going to answer that question. Why are there different views? Here's why. I mean this. I'm not joking. I'm not trying to get a laugh. Here's why. Because we are very dumb. Do I, should I put that another way for those of us who are really <laughs> Because we're not very smart. This is due to what theologians call the noetic, not noet, not after Noah, but noetic, having to do with nos, the Greek word for mental, cognitive, the noetic effects of the fall. Due to the fall, we don't think very well. Due to the fall, we don't reason very well. Due to the fall, we're really subject to um, cognitive biases of various kinds. And so uh, we get biased and we don't think well. We don't deal with the evidence well. Even just just if you think of a standard bell curve, IQ, the one in the center is pretty much you scored 100. You're the average IQ in the United States. You scored 100. 100 compared to God is not very smart. A hundred compared to Einstein, who is believed to have been about 160, is really not very smart. I mean, Einstein was way ahead. And there are lots of other people alive today who are down toward where he was or where he was. Most of us, we're just not very smart. We have different views because we're dumb. That's my first answer to why. Here's a second answer to why. Not only are we dumb, but we're reading the book that's written by God. Now, if God writes a book, and he did, I know he used human authors, but when they were all done, it's exactly what he wanted. It's the word of God. If God writes a book, do you think there will be parts in it that are hard to understand? Do you think there will be parts in it that are pretty deep, pretty profound, pretty hard to piece together and figure it all out? Yeah, I think so. I, I say this reverently. God is very smart, like way smarter than Einstein. Could you read Einstein and understand him? No, you'd probably struggle with that. I wouldn't even try myself. I, I bought a copy of one of the greatest science books ever. I bought it this year just because I thought, I want to have that. It's one of the greatest science books ever. It's the Principia, or some pronounce it Principia, written by Sir Isaac Newton. I can, I can read and understand about page one. I'm not kidding you. It's a great, big, thick book with beautiful paper and all. I can read about page one. And the rest of the book, I'm like, okay, I'm glad I own it now. There it is. I got it on a shelf right over there beside my desk where there are my, like my favorite books, the books that I really want to have separate and it's sitting over there. I can't understand Sir Isaac Newton. How do you think I'm going to understand everything God says in the book he writes? He's an omniscient God. He's the all-wise God. Do you expect his book to be easy? 
Now, there are easy parts, and fortunately, bless God, in, in God's wisdom, he saw to it that all the essentials that you need for life and godliness are easy to understand. A babe, a child can understand them. Thank you, Lord, for making that the case. We can all understand how to be saved, how to live in righteousness, how to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, how to love our neighbor as ourselves. None of that's hard to understand. We could explain it to our young children as soon as they're verbal. But just as there are easy parts, there are also complex parts, God-sized parts, parts that have God's depth of understanding written into them. Somebody once said, I love this thing. I don't know if I have it exactly right. This is how my mind, that it, that it has the noetic effect. This is how my mind remembers it. There in the Bible, there are shallows for the lambs to wade in, and there are deeps or depths for the elephants to swim in. That's pretty cool. I like that. And when we come to the subject of the millennium, we are in the depths, and we are dumb, and the book is written by God. So one of the things I'm really after in this, in this podcast is to bring about in you, in me, to bring about in us a greater cognitive humility. Humility is always a good thing, right? Jesus Christ leads us to humility. We should have cognitive humility, meaning I realize I don't think real well. I realize I don't think fairly. I realize I don't reason well. I realize I'm subject to cognitive biases, and I'm very dumb, and I'm biased, and I'm reading a book by God. Here's another reason why there are differences. Reason number three, because this issue, eschatology, is particularly complex. I mean, of all the Bible doctrines that there are, this one is particularly complex. What do I mean by complex? Well, to start with, there's no passage that says you should be amill, and here are three reasons why. There's no po- passage that says you should be pre-mill. Here's what pre-mill means, and here's why. I wish there was. We could all believe it, and we'd be done. But when it comes to eschatology, we are piecing together bits from many passages that go over the course of hundreds of years in different cultures, in different places in the world, written by different authors, even in in different languages, and we're piecing all that together. Anytime you're piecing together such disparate pieces of information, there's lots of room for error. Fallen humans, weak humans, stupid humans, we're going to wind up having lots of different views because the complexity is immense. That's the third reason why there are differences. Here's the fourth reason why. Because to some extent, this is really important when it comes to eschatology and why there are differences, the place you start in will very much determine where you end. The things you adopt as true up front will very much flavor how you interpret everything else as you proceed. So you make assumptions early on. You, make, you have presuppositions that you adopt early on. And then you start to see everything else, cognitive bias, in light of those things. So I'm, I'm like an ah-mill, and then everything starts to look ah-mill. What do they say to a guy holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Yeah. To a guy who's pre-mill, everything looks pre-mill. To a guy who's post-mill, it's so plain, can't you see it? What, do you don't believe the word? Everything looks, looks pre-mill. And so uh, the place where you start, to a certain extent, depends or, or determines where you will end up. Which, what do I mean by places where you start? Well, which text you see is more fundamental? Which text do you determine are more clear? This is the more clear text. I'll interpret the less, less clear one in light of this one. Uh, various things like that. Let me go to those next. So we're talking about why. Why is it is it hard? Why are there differences? I mentioned starting assumptions. I mentioned presuppositions. I'm going to ask the question and answer it. What are some of the assumptions one might make 
What are some of the places you, people, might start, starting places that determine where you're going to end up? Let me give you some. Someone who winds up pre-mill probably started with one, their church and their friends and everybody they knew were pre-mill. Probably the Bible teachers you came to admire were pre-mill. But more than that, here are some reasons why you might wind up pre-mill. Here's a starting place you might choose. You might decide early on. Old Testament Bible prophecies about Israel's future must be interpreted literally. I did that for years because I was born again into premillennialism until I started figuring out that New Testament authors don't always interpret them literally. In fact, sometimes they very don't interpret them literally. But that's a starting place. The Old Testament prophecies must be interpreted literally. So when it says Israel's going to be their land and they're going to have sacrifices, premillennialists say yeah, there's going to be a millennium with sacrifices offered. They're letting go of that a little. They used to say, well, the sacrifices won't be for the remission of sins. It'll be to remind us of the sacrifice of Christ. All seems kind of retrograde. And the book of Hebrews says sacrifices are gone because we have a greater sacrifice. So some premillennialists now are saying, all right, maybe there won't be literal sacrifices. Maybe that's figurative to say we'll have Christ's sacrifice. All right, they're already getting figurative on us. Old Testament prophecies must be interpreted literally. Someone else says, no, Revelation chapter 20, the thousand years must be interpreted literally. Well, you're in a very, very highly figurative book. I'd like to show you that a little bit later. And here's another big thing that you'll do as a starting point. It'll determine where you end up and you'll end up pre-mill. If you believe that Israel is one thing and the church is another thing and ne'er the twain meet, Israel must always be Israel. And here's what premillennialists classically believe. God had his Old Testament kingdom program with his chosen people, Israel. He sent the son, and, and Israel rejected his son. And so he said, all right, wait, there's going to be a parenthesis in the outworking of my program with Israel. We're going to stop the program with Israel, eat, put on the brakes, put it on hold, and I'm going to start a new program with a different people, not foreseen in the Old Testament. This program's called the church. And when I'm done with the church, I'll rapture them out out of the way, and it will click back into Israel when the prophetic time, time clock will start clicking again, and we'll do Israel again, and then at the end, everybody will be united in heaven. So uh, one of the things that you might start with is Israel and the church, man, they must be separate. That's a major tenet of Charles Ryrie's book, Dispensationalism Today. And that, if you start there, you'll wind up saying, oh, man, I'm premillennial. Start with any of those, you'll be premillennial. How about postmillennial? What, what presuppositions, what early assumptions might lead you to be postmill? Well, the same things to start with. The church and friends you have been a part of were, were postmill. You, good chance you'll be post-mill. The Bible teachers you admire are post-mill. Good chance you'll be post-mill. But more than that, what are some of the things in the Bible you might start with that would lead you to become post-mill? Well, you might start with, post-mills tend to start with, the prophecies of the Old Testament about Christ's victorious reign, which many of us understand to be in the age to come. After he comes back and we're in a new heavens and a new earth, they're fulfilled then. But the post-mills assume up front, no, no, those prophecies have to be interpreted in time. Now, I want to say I have looked and looked and looked. I've been reading books on this currently, and I don't think they have any way of proving that. Like, I don't think they have textual reasons to say this Old Testament prophecy must be fulfilled in time. It could be then. I guess it could be now. We'll see. But if you start there, the prophecies of Christ's victorious reign have to be fulfilled in time, fulfilled 
quote, in this age. If you start there, then you're going to see everything else in light of that, and you're going to wind up interpreting things favorable to post-millennialism. Or how about New Testament passages about Christ reigning? We all believe Christ is reigning. He's sovereign. But some of them say, well, that means he's reigning now. We believe he's reigning now from heaven. Others say, but he's going to reign so well that he's going to turn the earth almost into heaven. All right, prove me that from a text. And I don't think they've done a very good job of that. All right, going on. What presuppositions, what starting points might land you in the Amil territory? Well, same thing to start with. The church you go to, the friends you have, the Bible preachers and teachers, that the scholars that you admire, they're Amil. But here's some other things as you come to your Bible. Here's where you might start in your Bible. You might say, no, no, no. We don't start with the Old Testament text and say these must be fulfilled literally. We start with the New Testament, which is the right hermeneutic, by the way. The New Testament has greater light and we shine the light of the New Testament back on the old to correctly interpret it, to correctly understand it. And so if you're gonna be Amil, you might say, look, the primacy of the New Testament and how the New Testament authors used the old and applied the old to the church, that takes precedence over Old Testament literal interpretations of what the kingdom will be. Again, you might say the primacy of clear texts rules over symbolic texts, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, the thousand years, the millennium, and uh, the fact that you see clear texts that say there's only one coming, for example, there's only one last day, there's only one uh, last trumpet. So the primacy of clear texts over symbolic texts would probably lead you, might lead you to be a millennial. There are other things you could notice there, but I'm going to leave them for now. So what have you seen? There are three or four main views. Why are there differences? Because we're dumb, because it's God's book, and he's very, very smart, say it reverently, and because eschatology is particularly complex, and because we all start somewhere in our starting places and our starting presuppositions and our starting assumptions really, really dramatically affect how we're going to see everything else and where we wind up. And that's why it's so hard for somebody who's always been pre-mill to see how on earth could the guy who's always been on-mill, how on earth could he see what he's seeing in the Word of God and look, look askance at one another? Now, let me go to a, another thing. Here's the next thing I want to talk about. So premillennialism is currently, and since the late 1800s, early 1900s, has been the dominant view among evangelical, Bible-believing people of God. It's by far the dominant view today. Almost everybody I, I meet today has a premillennial, every Christian I meet today has a premillennial schemata in their brain. Like they expect that we're going to have the church age, it's going to get very bad, then Christ is going to rapture us out, then there's going to be a seven-year tribulation, and after that Christ comes back, then there's going to, he's going to rule on earth in a Jewish millennium for a thousand years, and after that he comes back and there's the last day and the judgment, and then we're going to go to heaven or go to hell forever. Almost every Christian I meet has that schemata in their head. They are pre-millennial. I want you to know a little history here. It wasn't that way until the late 1800s or really the early 19th. 1800s. Prior to that time, immediately prior to that, most believers on the planet were post-millennial. Things are going to get better and better. The gospel's going to win. Everybody's going to come to Christ. The whole earth will be one big church, and it'll be a glorious thing. The lion will lie down with the lamb. There won't be any wars anymore, and uh, everybody will be healthy and so on. So they believe that, but the First World War and the Second World War gave post-millennialism a very big black eye. And caused a lot of people to say, wow, we've gotten worse, not better. Like These are the worst wars ever. How can post-millennialism be right? 
And so what happened at about that time is this thing happened in, in our land especially, but in other lands as well, called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Here's what happened. So Americans weren't wise. I'm not criticizing them. I probably wouldn't have been wise either if I'd been there. We've learned from their mistakes now, so we can be more wise. But Americans weren't wise. And they sent their best students, candidates for the ministry, their future seminary professors, they sent them over to Germany to get PhDs that were respectable, to be scholarly, to impress the world and all that. And what happened is they went over there at a time when the German seminaries had um, – had fallen into very, very false doctrine, were ripping the Bible to shreds, were not believing in the miracles of the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, substitutionary atonement, etc. And our best guys came back home messed up. What that resulted in is they messed up the mainline denominations. They, they took what they learned in Germany, they put it in their pulpits, they put it in their seminaries, and the old mainline denominations went down. The old Presbyterian, the old Lutheran, the old you name them, they went down theologically. They all went bad. And so there was this great controversy between the fundamentalists, those who believe the fundamentals of the Bible, and the modernists. They always choose these names. Today it's progressive Christians. And then it was, we are the modernists. And the modernists said, Said, uh, no, we don't believe the Bible is all the Word of God, but it can be the Word of God to you. You might experience the Word of God while you read the Bible that's full of errors and flaws and is man's ideas, stuff like that. So there was a great controversy over this. Uh, one of the great warriors in that controversy was a Baltimore, a son of Baltimore. His name was J. Gresham Machen. He's buried in Greenmount Cemetery. My oldest son and I were there when he was but a young man, and uh, wow, we went to visit the man's grave. It was awesome. But out of that controversy emerged a thing called the Bible Conference Movement. That's what we call it, the Bible Conference Movement. So believers in churches of different kinds everywhere, they're churches that just gone south uh, theologically, and they're looking for, wait a minute, where can I find true believers? Where can I gather with true believers, people who believe the Bible, believe the gospel like me? Where can I find them? And they found one another at Bible conferences. Bible conferences for Bible believers became a very big item, a very hot thing. Uh, the biggest one, best known one, was the Niagara Bible Conference. And uh, there were many, many others. Some of the dominant, all the dominant teachers, most of the dominant teachers were premillennial. It just happened to be in the providence of God, or if you're looking at it humanly, by historical accident, it just happened that most of the, the great teachers who surfaced for that movement were premillennial. And they identified premillennialism with orthodoxy. They said, we're the guys who are interpreting scripture literally. So we're going to interpret Old Testament texts about Israel's future, literally. We're going to interpret Revelation 20, then the millennium, literally. And this wooden literal approach to Scripture became the thing. And if you didn't have it, you weren't orthodox. And out of that grew another movement called the Bible Institute or the Bible College. The Bible Institutes became Bible Colleges. The one I went to, Washington Bible College near D.C. when I went there, started from a Bible Institute that was in D.C., um, Moody Bible College began as, I don't even know, are they still that or are they Moody University? Everything's turning university now. But it was Moody Bible Institute. And premillennialism was what was taught in those institutes. Premillennialism was what spread from those institutes. And again, it became the only orthodox thing. I went to Washington Bible College, and you had to be pre-mill, pre-trib to graduate. I just barely graduated because my pre-mill, pre-trib was cracking up fast by that point. 
But I was able to sign the docs as they had things written. But anyway, this was very big. Then another thing that came out as a result of that fundamentalist modernist controversy, or at the same time as, was a famous Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. There was this man named C.I. Schofield. He was a very influential man. He was an intellectual, uh, serious Christian. And I was raised on school. I, I never bought a Schofield Bible whole lot of my fellow students at Washington Bible College had them. And I thought, no, I don't want a Bible where man's words are on the same page as God's words. Guess what? I now use and love an ESV study Bible. I got over it. But anyway, uh, the Schofield Reference Bible became like, this is the true Bible-believing Bible. Like, if you go to the Bible conferences, if you're interested in the Bible institutes, you got to get a Schofield Reference Bible. Guess what? It was premillennial, and it identified premillennialism with faithfulness and integrity with the Word of God. So that's how premillennialism became dominant. It didn't happen till really somewhere around the 1920s, let's say. So the majority of Christians today don't know that. You kind of assume this is what believers always believe, not so. For most of Christendom, the major view from, let's say, Augustine, the 300s, all the way down until the Reformation and later, all the, all the way down to the Puritans, the 1600s, that was pretty much all amillennial. This is the millennium. This is also the tribulation. Christ comes once, and then that's the end. Then postmillennialism became the big thing uh, from the Puritan era on down till, let's say, uh, the 1920s. Postmillennial was much bigger. But, and then pre-mill one, and it's been pre-mill ever since. So we, it's safe to say that premillennialism has only been the dominant view of God's people for a rather brief time. But it is the, brief, it is the dominant view right now. All right. So next thing I want to cover is, does it matter? Pastor Steve, does it really matter if I even have a view on this? Does it really matter whether I'm pre-mill or post-mill or ah-mill? And I want to say, well, in a sense, it doesn't really matter because here's what's going to happen. Whether you're pre, post, ah, or oh, I like this. There's pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, and windmill. Ha <laughs> ha, this is a joke. What's windmill? Blown about by every wind of catalogical doctrine. I'm pre-mill today. Oh, tomorrow I get blown into ah-mill, depending on who I read, listened to, or talked to. So there's also pan-mill. I'm kind of all of them. I'm not sure, so I'm just all of them. That's pan-mill. Pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, windmill, and pan-mill, different views. But it does matter because whichever view you take has its side effects. There are downstream effects of your view. Your view to be specific, affects your expectation for this age. So that classically, and I'm painting with a broad brush here, but classically, pre-mills are pessimistic about this age. They classically generally believe, oh man, things are just going to get worse and worse. They have texts they interpret to mean that. The texts don't say that. The texts say evil men and imposters will get worse and worse, meaning look at that evil guy. He gets worse. Look at that evil guy. Look at that imposter. He gets worse. It doesn't mean the world gets worse and worse and worse. You couldn't live on it if it got much worse than World War I, World War II. And it got better since then in that regard. But pre-mills are generally pessimistic, even about the church. A lot of people, because of the fundamentalist, modernist controversy and churches were going south and caving in everywhere, they were saying, look, this is the end times. Even the church is apostate now. we got to come out of the churches. The church isn't where God's at anymore. It's the Bible conferences. It's the, the Bible institutes. That's where it's really happening. They were even pessimistic about the church. Also, if you're pre-mill, you tend to be not politically interested because that's just the world, and the world's going to hell in a handbag. 
basket. And so who cares about the world? Let's just let it go down. We're just here to save souls out of this world. That's a classic pre-mill effect on how you actually live. What about a post-mill? They're the exact opposite. They're very optimistic. They believe that this age, the church age, is going to turn into a golden age where it's just glorious. The gospel has won, and there are faithful churches everywhere. And just about everybody you know is a believer, and, and Christ is ruling in power and so on. So they're very optimistic, and they're optimistic about and interested in politics. They believe that as more and more people get saved and the earth becomes one big church, then all our politicians are going to say, well, now that I'm saved, I need to know what are the implications of the Word of God on me as a politician? And they want to know, how do I do politics to the glory of God? And so post-millennial people are really interested, by and large, in politics. We call them theonomic reconstructionists. They want to take theonomy, God's law about everything, and reconstruct culture and politics and law and you name it according to the principles of the Word of God. What about if you're Amil? What are the downstream effects of that? Well, you'll be just right. <laughs> I'm Amil. You'll just be a balance of pessimism because you believe evil continues throughout the age. There's no golden age coming until Christ comes back. And you'll also be a balance believing of optimism, believing, and the kingdom of God is going to keep growing and people will keep getting saved. So you'll have a proper, I think, proper balance of pessimism and optimism, a realistic mix that to me meets the, 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 the text of the word of God. So, so there are different views and they're complex and we're busy and the baby is crying and even the scholars can't agree and I need to vacuum Debbie's car. That's a true story. She was having lunch with the ladies in, ladies in our neighborhood today. And so when I was getting ready to come over here, she came down to my study and said, oh, I'm giving somebody a ride. Can you vacuum my car, please? It's awful. When it was leafy time of year, all kind of leaf crumbs all over the floor of her car. Can you come up and vacuum my car? Said, yeah, I will. Back it out. Vacuum it all. Put it back together. I'm busy. You're busy. Um, so here's my next thing I want to talk about. Because we're all busy and because it's complex and hard to understand and because we're very dumb and because even the best scholars can't agree, what, here's my question, what should the layman do? Like, I'm the layman, you say. What should I do? What should the ordinary Christian do? What should the rank and file of God's people do? What should mama's busy changing diapers do? What should your eschatological position be? How should you approach the whole thing? Let me give you some things to think about. Here's thing number one on my list. One of my very favorite living theologians, he's retired. Maybe he ain't living too much longer. I hope he does. His name is John Frame. I love him. I love his theology. I love his writings. And I'm going to quote to you what he said about eschatology. This comes out of his volume on the doctrine of the Christian life. Great big book. He says, quote, my own eschatology, question mark, through my career, I have avoided the millennial question like the plague. Ha! I love it. That might be the position of prudence, my friends. Maybe Mr. Frame, Professor Frame, is teaching us all something good here. Like, he's one of our premier, most brilliant theologians in our land in these current days. He's retired now. But he's been that for quite some time. And he says, oh, eschatology? I'm not even going there. That's how hard it is to figure it out. We might do well to be like Frame and say, you know what? I'm going to wait and see when Jesus comes, and then it'll all be clear. Not a bad idea. Here's another thing I would suggest a layman should do. My second thing for the layman. Be content. I mean this. This should really make you content. Be content to focus on and hold to what I'm going to call the core doctrines of eschatology. 
Yes, I believe there are core doctrines of eschatology, and then there are less core, not core doctrines. There are closed-hand parts of eschatology. If you're a Bible-believing, faithful Christian, you must believe these and don't let go of them. And there are open-hand matters of eschatology. I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and I believe this, but I hold it with an open hand. It could change. Somebody could take it away from me and put a different position in my hand. Be content to focus on and hold to the core doctrines of eschatology. What are they? I named them earlier but here they are again. There's going to be a last day. There's going to be a great judgment. Jesus is going to come visibly, bodily. We'll see him in the clouds. He'll descend. He'll call his people up to himself. There will be judgment. Uh, there'll be the, the, the great judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous, those who love Christ and those who reject Christ. There'll be a heaven and a hell, heaven forever and ever for the blessed, hell forever and ever for those who are not blessed to be in Christ. Those are the main, those are the key, those are the core doctrines. We all believe those. We're all certain those things are coming in the future. The rest of it is details. So hold those with a tight fist, with a closed hand, and my recommendation to you is that you hold all the others with an open hand. That's that cognitive humility thing again. Just say, well, you know what? If John Frame can't figure it out and be certain, who am I to figure it out and be certain? So I'm not so sure. Pre-mill, post-mill, amill, I don't know. Like, I'm amill, but I might be wrong. (laughs) I'm amill, it might be post-mill. I'm amill, it might be pre-mill, but I really don't think it's pre-mill, but I'm amill, but I'm holding it with a loose hand. Okay? Here's one other thing I want to say under this section of what should the layman do. I mean this with all my heart. Please hear me on this. Please do not view the other guys as heretics. Please. See, this is what happened. It's primarily pre-mills who do this because of the, you know, the, the Bible conference movement, the Bible teachers they like, the Schofield Reference Bible, the Bible Institutes. They all taught that, look, if you don't hold to our pre-mill view, then you're like the church that just went down. You're not interpreting scripture literally and faithfully. You're suspect. You're not orthodox. And you tend to view the other positions post-mill, amill, as suspect, if not heretical. Pre-mills tend to do this because they associate their view with the only faithful use of the Word of God, the only literal interpretation of the Word. So I'm going to say don't view, please don't view the other guy as heretic. View him or her as your brother and sister in Christ, and we're all trying to figure out with our pea brains what's the truth about this complex thing that God has put in his amazingly deep book. All right, I'm going to move on to the next thing. I'm at 30 minutes. Good. I wrote right there in my manuscript, time, question mark. And so I'm looking at my clock. I remembered to touch the start button on my clock for once, and uh, I rarely do that. It's running for me today. i got 30 minutes. So you might ask, we have time for this. Steve, what's your position and why? <laughs> I was hoping you would ask that. You already heard me say I am a mill. Now, let me just tell you, before I tell you my position and why, I just read a book that gives you three views. Here it is. It's called The Millennium and Beyond. And it gives you three different authors' positions. One of them's pre-mill, one of them's post-mill, one of them's on-mill. The pre-mill guy makes his case the best he can, and the other two critique it, and so on. The book goes like that. And I determined I'm going to read that, and I'm going to try my best to let each author convince me of his view. You don't want to go to the author and say, oh, I'm going to fight him all the way because I'm mill and he's pre-mill and I know he's wrong, so I'm going to fight, 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 fight. Cognitive bias going crazy right there. What you want to do is have cognitive humility and say, you know what, I might be wrong. 
Let me read let me read the other views and try to really understand them and try to see where are they getting that from Scripture? Could I possibly ever even believe that? And I even like to try to believe it. I'm not saying try to believe atheism. Don't try to believe naturalism. Don't try to believe evolution. But try to believe the other guy's eschatological view. So I just read this book, and when I'm almost finished, another book, trying to give them a fair chance. And each guy has some really good arguments, and it's very complex. And each guy pokes holes in the other arguments. And again, it's very complex. And it's hard to figure out where you really want to land. But let me give you six reasons, six reasons why I'm Amil. I'm going to try and do it fast. You don't need a lot of details here. Here's what started me becoming Amil. So I'm a Bible college student and then a seminary student, and I'm reading and reading and reading and really reading my Bible, and I'm reading books on eschatology. And it didn't take me long at all to become very convinced that in God's Word, there is one and only one future coming. There's no passage that says there's a one coming and then later there's another coming. People are saying that coming I think is going to happen then and where the coming same coming shows up over there. I think it's a different one for these reasons and it's going to happen then. But I came became very convinced there's only one coming of Christ followed by the end, followed by the last day, judgment day, and there's no passage describing two comings. Furthermore, I noticed and became convinced of what I'm going to call the two-age model or the two-age schemata. What is that? The Bible teaches us, the New Testament teaches real clearly there are two ages. There's the present age, it has characteristics, and there's the age to come, it has characteristics. There are two ages. Let me read you one verse about that, Ephesians 1, it's two verses, one passage. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, talks about Christ, the Father, what he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, this comes up again and again and again in the New Testament. There are two ages. There's this age, and there's the age to come. And the age to come is always heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. That's the eschatological age. What are the characteristics of this age? Again and again and again, they are these. It is called Galatians 1.4, this present evil age. It is Ephesians 2.2, an age that walks according to the course of this world, that follows the prince of the power of the air. The whole age this is why I'm not post-millennial. This is why I don't think this age turns golden. This age gets amazing. Everybody gets saved. It's heaven on earth. No, this is the present evil age. This is the two-age schemata going on. What's this age like? It's an evil age. It's a disobedient age. Mark 10, 29 to 30, there's suffering throughout the age. We don't abolish all suffering on the planet by a golden part of this age. There's death, Luke 20, 34 through 30. Second Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is the god of this age all the way down to the end of this age. Matthew 13, the wheat is sown to the end of the age, and don't separate it from the tares who are sown to the end of the age. Separate them then, and then there's the last day. Then there's judgment. Then there's heaven and there's hell. And I became convinced that there's only one coming. Here are the, here's the passages that say that. And I became convinced that there are two ages, and the characteristics of this age all the way down till Christ comes are those. It's an evil age, a disobedient age. There's suffering. There's death. There's Satan, the god of this age. There's wheat and tares. There's gospel and evil, both progressing side by side down till Jesus comes. That's my second reason why I'm Amil. Here's my third reason. This is mainly why another reason why I'm not post-millennial, why I don't believe we're headed for a golden part of this age. The Old Testament passages about ultimate victory 
our our post mill friends tell us, oh, they they get fulfilled now. And I just read a whole lot of their writings about why they believe those get fulfilled now. And I was hoping it might convince me, and maybe I'd become a post mill. I really was. I would love to be post mill because it's cool. But it didn't convince me one bit. There was nothing in any of the passages that exegetically suggested that these great times that are predicted need to be fulfilled now in this age. And there's every reason to believe they could just as well be fulfilled in the age to come. And I do believe that the New Testament points out to us they're going to be fulfilled in the age to come. What kind of passages do you mean? Well, Habakkuk 2.14 is a good example. For the earth will be filled. This is a classic post-mill verse. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So our postmill friends say, see, that's going to happen in this age. And I say, prove to me it's from this age. And they go, proof, 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 proof. And I look at their proofs and say, you didn't prove me anything. You need a text that's proven it. And none of the texts do that. So the Old Testament passages about ultimate victory, I believe they're fulfilled in the age to come. Furthermore, if you're premillennial, you literally have, you have two things that are called last trumpets. You have a last trumpet, and then you have another last trumpet. You have to massage that real hard. I wasn't able to massage that anymore. Furthermore, the New Testament authors do not interpret Old Testament prophecies about Israel's future literally. They apply those prophecies to the church. Furthermore, moving on, the book of Revelation, I came to believe, is absolutely not literal or sequential. It is prophetic genre. It is apocalyptic genre. It is highly figurative, where the thing seen in John's vision represents another thing. It's not literal. Let me give an example from the Old Testament. In Daniel's vision of a statue, what did the statue represent? Did it mean there's going to be a great big statue like he saw one day? No, the statue represented four kingdoms. There's an interpretation to what the statue meant. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what did it represent? It represented other things. So with the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is full of so many things that must be figurative. Let me give you a few examples. Revelation 1.20. And why all this matters is because when we get to chapter 20, is the thousand years a literal millennium? By the way, in chapter 20, nothing says that's going to be a Jewish millennium. Nothing says those thousand years have Christ back. Nothing says those thousand years have sacrifices. None of that. That's all. You took it from somewhere else and plugged it in right there. But there are so many things in the book of Revelation that are figurative, that have to be. For example, Revelation 1.20. You see Christ. And here's how he looks. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, he says, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So you saw stars, but they're not really stars. They're angels. They're something else. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. They're not really lampstands. They represent something else. This is again and again and again throughout the book of Revelation. Let me take you to Revelation 5, 6, the lamb. I'm going to ask you now, is Jesus literally a lamb? No, he is figuratively a lamb, a wonderful lamb. Bless God for the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the the world. But lamb connotes the idea of he is a sacrificial victim who will bear the iniquities of his people. And we read in Revelation 5, 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. So if you went up to heaven now, would you literally see a lamb? Bah, wool, short cute little thing. Would you literally see a lamb standing next to the throne of God? No, you know that's not the case. 
I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. If you saw the lamb, if you saw Jesus, does he literally have seven horns with seven eyes? Does Jesus really have seven eyes, which are something else, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth? And so this book, I love it, on page 241. I'm just going to go to there now and read you a couple of things. And there's a great section here on all kinds of things that just can't be literal and that must be symbolic. For example, um, in chapter 5, verse 8, incense represents prayers. In chapter 12, verse 9, a serpent represents Satan. In chapter 17, verse 9, heads represent mountains. In chapter 17, verse 12, horns represent kings. In chapter 17, verse 15, uh, waters represent people. John tells us there are creatures full of eyes and six wings. There's a seven-eyed lamb. There's people talking to mountains. There's people washing robes in blood. There's locusts with human faces. There's lion-headed horses. There's fire-breathing prophets. There's a woman clothed with the sun while standing on the moon. I mean, is that literal? Is that really going to happen? There's a seven-headed dragon that pulls stars down from heaven. There's a serpent vomiting out a river. There's a seven-headed beast. There's frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. There's a blood-drinking harlot. Premillennialists tend to take all this literally. No wonder they're like terrified of the tribulation period and don't want to be in it and want to be raptured out. And it just goes on and on and on. There's a blood-drinking harlot. There's Jesus returning from heaven on a horse and with a sword in his mouth. So there are just so many things in the book of Revelation that I'm convinced and others like me are convinced that those things can't be taken literally. And I don't think that the thousand years in chapter 20 is literal either. I think it speaks of a long, long time in which Christ reigns from heaven and formerly martyred saints reign in heaven with him and his saints on earth who love him also reign with him in this age that has both good and evil progressing until Jesus returns. And then we have judgment, new heavens, new earth. I absolutely believe that's what the Bible teaches. So I am a millennial, one coming and then the end. From now till then, it's a mix, righteousness and evil, but I'm holding it with a loose hand. Bottom line, one, please hold to the core doctrines of eschatology. Two, hold all other parts of eschatology loosely. Wait and see. Three, please don't accuse the others of playing fast and loose with the Bible, of not being literal, of being allegorical, of being dangerous with the Word of God. And four, please don't leave a church over minute matters in eschatology. A guy and his wife, who I really liked, left Cornerstone, and they got very upset at me and very, we don't trust you anymore, you don't handle the Word of God faithfully, when they found out I'm not dispensational, premillennial, and they left our church. Don't leave a church over these things. I'm going to close with a joke that somebody told me recently. Debbie and I went out to dinner with a nice couple in our church, great people, I love them, and the husband told us all a joke, and here was his joke. There was a guy who was marooned on an island. He's all by himself out in the island. He's a bright guy, and he liked to be busy. He's a doer. So he started building things, and he built himself a house, and then he built himself a vacation house, and then he built a, a, a I don't know, a laundry room, and then he built a really nice bathroom, and then he built a swimming pool area, and then, and then he built a church, and so on. And, and lo and behold, one day, a ship pulled up to the island. The ships pull up, floated up. Anyway, and the guys get off the ship and say, we're here to rescue you, but wait a minute. What are all these things you built? Take us on a tour. Show us your buildings. And he took them and said, that's the library, and that's the sauna, and that's my house, and that's my vacation house. And there's one house he didn't mention, one building over there. And they said to him, what's that building? And he said, 
Um, oh, by the way, I should have said, and, and that one over there is my church. All right. And they said, well, what's that building? And he said, that's the church I used to go to. Do you get it? Like, we are so terrible at this that even if I'm marooned all alone on a desert island, I can't even stay in the church I'm in. I'll separate from myself after a while. Don't do that. Don't be that way. Don't leave a church over pre-mill, post-mill, amill. And may the Lord bless you. Thank you for listening to this Grounded. I have enjoyed it. I hope you did. This comes out uh, twice a month, Grounded does, on major platforms. And if you like it, hey, give us some comments. Share us with a friend. Thank you.